This is a podcast by The Straits Times. You're listening to Music Lab, a new podcast series by The Straits Times. Each month, we invite music acts to our podcast studio. Here's your host, Adino Abdul Hadi, ST's music correspondent with his guest for this episode. Hello, I am Adino Abdul Hadi, music correspondent at The Straits Times. Today, we have with us in the ST podcast studio, Singaporean singer, songwriter and musician Suzairi. Hey guys, this is Zairi. I'm in the ST Podcast Studio and this is my song, Daylight. Sazari first made his name in the late 2000s as the winner of the third and last season of reality television show Singapore Idol. With his velvety voice and smooth R&B tunes, the singer has since seen his popularity expand into the region in recent years. In 2022, he made history as the first local musician to have a song clock more than 100 million streams on Spotify with his emotive ballet It's You. He recently released his fourth album, Self Soothing, featuring songs driven by the pursuit of inner peace and emotional stability. Hi, Cesairi, and welcome to our show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the release of Self Soothing. Thank That's you. That's your fourth album. It's a very zen, very calming title. <laughs> you know, tell us how you came up with it. Um, actually, I didn't know what I was going to name it while I was making it. So I had a rough idea of the kind of songs that I wanted to be on there. But only halfway through did I realise that all the melodies that we were pulling out at... So we wrote and recorded in Bali okay. at the start of the year. Nice. So I spent weeks there in Bali with my producer Petra Sihombing. And when we initially wrote the songs, we kind of knew how, how we wanted them to feel. But halfway through, we realised that at the start of every session, we, I would pull out a reference of a song that I really liked from my youth. And a lot of the songs were kind of born out of that, of like, hey, I realized that I used to listen to these songs when I was younger, when everything else seemed intense, it felt like you could just withdraw into music. And side note is that my dad used to work three jobs. So one of them was he was a hi-fi salesman. Ah. And we would have a lot of gear in our house. Wow. And my house was stacked with like CD collections, vinyl collections, nice. and all that kind of stuff. So. I had like quote-unquote Spotify library from oh. the 90s to early 2000s onwards. And my dad's quite a tastemaker actually. He has some pretty good music in there. And so I would just, days for days on end, uh-huh. would just enter the CD and yeah. listen to music from start to finish. Which I realise is so different from how people listen to music now. Which yeah. is they see a song, click, yeah. song, mm-hmm. repeat. And when I was writing the album, I, I realised that this is a real point of self-soothing for me. Yeah. Like every time anything gets tough, that's mm-hmm. all I knew. Uh, when we were younger, I mean, a lot for a lot of us millennials, we don't have that relationship with our parents where we can be completely open yeah. with them and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the regulating when I was younger and self-soothing happened through mm-hmm. the listening of music and I just really imagine myself in the corner of my living room with my headphones on for hours Yeah, and at the end of it I always felt like ah okay Mm -hmm. the day is good now you know 
And that's really why I named the album Self-Soothing, is that I can take that experience from myself and the recipe that I, I think mm-hmm. people could chill out to right. and just hand it over to my audience. Yeah. You've been quite prolific in the last few years. Have new I? songs. And <laughs> like, oh, it's like the last EP was just last year, right? Mm-hmm. How have you seen yourself change as a singer-songwriter over the years? Um, damn. I, I look at my older stuff and realize that I really knew nothing, mm-hmm. I feel. At this stage of listening to my new music and being incredibly proud of where it's come from, mm-hmm. I think a lot of what I used to be was a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, a lot of anxiety of like, what do I do? Where do I go? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to sound like? Mm-hmm. Who am I really? Yeah. And through that process, you know, just life happens. Falling in love happens. Yeah. Death happens. People come, people go. And just maturing in my life has really taught me to, I guess, not worry so much about what your music should sound like, but also just about what I really have to say that I feel is true in my heart. Mm-hmm. There are moments now where I sing these newer songs on stage and it feels electric almost yeah. because when you're saying it, it resonates with something so deep inside you mm-hmm. that you're like, oh, I, I feel it's a simple line, but I feel this so strongly and I see it translate in the audience and how people reach out to me and tell me like, this line is so stupid, simple, but I really felt it. And I feel like... The point of me being a musician is not really so that I can do music, but it's really so that I can have these moments, you know. These moments are so invaluable to me that I can connect with you on this level that's deeper than maybe even your best friend or or family. Yeah. And so I really yearn for this kind of like connection with people, letting them hear my music and just looking at the look in their eye when Mm. things change in their brain, you know. Let's go back to your youth again. Mm. So you had a fantastic music collection at home, but at which point did you think, okay, I don't want to just be a fan of music. I want to make my own music. I want to be a musician. I have a great story. Yes, please. Hit us. So I don't know what year it was, early 2000s or something. I watched the movie called That Thing You Do. Oh, fantastic Yeah, and that was a fantastic movie with a fantastic soundtrack. The first movie that Tom Hanks ever directed. And that movie basically, as you know, is about a drummer who joins a band, they write a song in their garage, Mm -hmm. it goes viral in the 60s. Viral in the 60s. (laughs) Viral in the 60s is different from viral now, you know, because it's so hard to get people to get this out to people. People had to be hungry for it, you know? Yeah. And so that process of watching them, like the song blow up, them running to the parents' electronic shop and turning all the radios to listen to their song on radio, that resonates with me so deeply. I looked at that and I went like, if I could write a song Mm. in my bedroom and then go on tour and do this, I think that would be the best job. Like, what? Name me a better job. So were you already singing like karaoke or were you playing guitar? I was a shy, I was a shy kid. I never really sang a lot. Throughout secondary school, throughout primary school, I never really went on stage or like anything. Not, no Teacher's really, Day performance on stage? Nah, I was really shy. Okay. Until one moment where I met a busker who was a friend's friend who turned out to be Ridwan Zalani from Wicked Aura. <laughs> and I was like... Young award winner. Yeah, young art, yeah. Right? And I was like, what, what do you do for a living? And he was like, oh, I go to college to study music. And I'm like, you can do that? <laughs> I was like, literally like, yeah. you mean it's not polytechnic? Or I was like so clueless about everything at the time. I was a pretty sheltered kid. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I study music in college. And I was just like, dude, that's, that's insane. 
how can I use up my dad's CPF money to do this? <laughs> I was and you were what, in like, secondary school at that time? Uh, like... I was 17. Oh, I had, tough. yeah, I had an episode where I just didn't want to do my O-levels. So I, mm-hmm. at 16, I just switched off to school. Okay. Yeah, technically. I just really wanted to find a way in which I could play music for a living. Wow. I think from a really young age, I was just like so sure for some reason, I don't know what it was, but mm. I was just so sure that someday I'd be there, like at the indoor stadium, like Taufik Batisa or something. Okay. Like, I just, I don't know, I just felt it in my gut and I was so sure. And did you take lessons, like piano lessons? or? No, I begged for violin lessons, piano lessons. But I understand that at the time, it was like a luxury for my family. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that we could very easily afford, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so even tuition fees was just a stretch, you know? Okay. Yeah, and so the focus wasn't really on expanding hobbies or anything. Yeah, We came from a pretty tight family. We were very thrifty. My mom had a chronic illness. Right. And so it was just like, when I told my dad, I secretly went to audition for LaSalle after that, after I married one. Ah, okay. Yeah. This is after O-Levels. Yes. And then I told my dad that I got accepted and they wanted to mm. offer me a vocal performance course. And he literally said in Malay, he was like, Nah, pantang nenek moyang aku kau jadi orang pemain muzik. Oh, and I was yeah, like, this sounds like a movie. I was like, that sounds, yeah, yeah. Like my my life is like a really weird B-rated indie movie. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I remember I was like, wow, that's so, that's so ironic because growing up, my dad would make me sit down in front of these towering speakers. Yeah. He would literally like, yeah. come, come, come. He's come. a music fan. He's yeah, like, he's, he's tone deaf, but he's a music fan. He's a true and true blue music fan. He would, he would get me to sit down and then he would change a cable that connects the speaker to the amp. And he was like, okay, this one is the gold cable. You hear the difference? Wow. Then I'm like, audio file. I'm like, the, for the longest time, me and my brother were like, what is he talking about? <laughs> you know, like, I don't hear no difference. And this speaker costs like, and I'm looking at the price of the cable and I'm like, I could have a PlayStation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I could have a PlayStation. Paid for your LaSalle. Yeah, <laughs> I could have. Yeah, and it was so, there was that sense of like animosity for music in a sense where I feel like, man, I could have had some of these for myself. Mm. And I didn't know back then that all these things were given to him. And also he, he right. couldn't really yeah. afford his own mm. hobby, you know, but he wanted it so badly. On hindsight now, I'm like, I really appreciate him for that. Okay. Because he did what he had to do to enjoy his music. And not a lot of people do that, you know, just to enjoy music, you're willing to pick up a Mm. second job, right? Because we come from a very, like, not very well-to-do family, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so, my mom's chronic illness really topped up on that. And a lot of our lives were just revolving around being in and out of the hospital for... I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, for decades of Mm. my life. Mm. It's just like the hospital is like a second home for me. And so like him investing in his music to me is kind of what I feel like I got out of it in a sense yeah. where I'm willing to do like more than, I realized halfway through my career that, hey, I'm willing to do more than most to be good at this. Mm-hmm. So did you go to LaSalle in the end? Yeah, I did, but I got kicked out also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, this is a B-grade indie film. What happened? But I got kicked out because I had been scouted by an agent and then I was doing nightly gigs. And as an as an 18-year-old, when you're earning a couple hundred bucks a night, kind of singing other people's songs, mm. you're like, ah, you're you know, like, YOLO. what? <clears throat> YOLO, Starbucks every day, man, you know? Where were you singing at that? Irish pubs, ah, uh, the Irish so pub circuit. Pubs around Singapore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I was a while top, you were studying at the same yeah, time. Yeah, while I was a music student, I was a top 40 singer. 
And I guess that trajectory also was how I ended up here because I realized that I really don't want to sing other people's songs. Uh, After like a couple of years of singing other people's songs, I was just like, okay, this is I'm Yours by Jason Mraz mm-hmm. for the 688th time this month, <laughs> you know? And it was just like, it started to become taxing. I admire people who can do that. I really, really, mm. I admire people who can do that. I just... I don't know what, it just started to make me very like edgy, kind of like antsy. And like, oh man, I, I yearned to sing something that... That was your own... That it's very different once you've had a taste of it also. If you don't write your own songs, you've never had a taste of that oneness of what you truly and deeply feel inside, just expressing that in your words. It's kind of like free therapy in a sense. You don't realize how much it affects you to unload your burdens. Yeah. And I think throughout my music career, that's just what I held on to, you know. Let's just be honest. Let's just be thoughtful. Let's think it a bit. Like whenever you think you've thought it through, let's just think it through a bit more. Don't always just think about yourself. Like how are people going to receive this? And yeah, I'm a chronic overthinker. So I think that's helped me a little bit also try to find the balance between Thinking about it a lot, but not thinking about it too much that it stresses you also. Okay. But yeah, that's kind of the journey of how I started to write my own songs and kind of the impetus that led me towards joining Idol. Okay. Yeah. It surrounds me. She's like. Hey there. If you like what you're listening to so far, find ST's Music Lab podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Get notified when we drop the latest episodes. Well, why were you kicked out of the cell then? Be- just because you were performing? So I, I had an agent and I was performing. So and it was against the school rules? No, I would be playing until like 4 or 5 in the morning. Ah, and then my attendance was like 25% or okay, something. Okay, okay. Yeah, right. and so I had repeated a, a, a semester and then... I don't know, it felt like the money was just so... Coming from someone who doesn't have a lot of money, yeah, like having your own money is just the most liberating feeling you'll ever experience as a teenager, right? So what happened after that? Was it uh, NS in MDC first? So when I, when I got that letter, and well, this is another... I feel like this is another indie film moment where the moment I got that letter, I went upstairs... And I remember so clearly I was going to give it to my mom. She was in the kitchen and on the right was Taufik Batisa on the screen. Oh, so that was the first... I dream. (laughs) Audition now. Third season of... Then I was just like, oh, this this is too hilarious. I was just like, I really legitimately, literally took that as a sign. Okay. And I was like, this is just too hilarious. So I had actually auditioned for the previous season. The one that Hadi... The one that Hadi won. But Mm. I saw the queue was so long Mm. and I just looked at the queue and I was like, there is... No way in God's green earth that I could be one of these people. That really? Could. And my idea at the time wasn't to win, but I wanted to win the recording contract. Yeah. Because yeah. I wanted an album and I was like doing the math like, whoa, mahal, mahal. This is, <laughs> you can do it this is expensive. Like yeah. I have no capital injection for this. Right. And this is a quick way for me to... And I'm, I'm, I was convinced that I could convince them to do it my way. Mm. Which is not always true, I think. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I was just like, okay... The third season, my friend dragged me out a bit. One of my music school friends, Rossi, I remember he came to my house and he like made sure that I turned up for auditions. Wow. And I was queuing for, I think, 12 hours. Oh, really? Outside Cathay. Why? Was and it how many hundreds of people, like, thousands of people? 
couple auditioning thou- couple thousand yeah outside cafe yeah and uh, and the moment I entered the hall right I was thinking like these people aren't gonna remember me man I looked at myself in the mirror before I went in and I was just like I had a deep moment of insecurity where I was just like how could they who would want to see this right yeah. and then when I went in I just like what can what could make me st- I was just like I don't know what I should say I just blabbered that like yeah I'm Najib Ali's cousin or something <laughs> and that stuck like hell because I was so anxious and was I didn't know true? what to say Were you Najib Ali's cousin no I'm not he's I'm no in no way I'm in no way related to Najib Ali but they added that in the cut in yeah, the end. I think I remember like watching that. Do you remember what song you sang at the audition? I sang John Legend's She Don't Have to Know. Nice. Yeah, not a very low-key, no one knows kind of song. Mm. I'm that kind of person where I don't want to sing a famous song. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I'd rather make something unknown my own. I feel like it's slightly less pressure that way. They don't expect, they don't know it, so they don't expect it to sound like anything. Hacks, by the way. Also, after that, I was just, you know, I did it. It's good. We'll mm-hmm. see what happens. I got the call back and then Idol happened for six months. Yeah. I didn't even expect to get it get to it that far. I was just like, okay, if it happens, it happens. At this point, I was just like, just go with the flow. Yeah. Just record episodes, sing. Yeah, just mm-hmm. be on stage, just do whatever. And on hindsight, I realized that a lot of the episodes that I went through, I had so much anxiety. I used to vomit every time before oh, I went dear. on stage. And this only yeah. stopped like, Two, three years ago. Oh, no. Like, I used to always have to have something sour because I just vomit before I go on stage and then I'll feel fine. Okay. Because, I don't know, they say it's the gut-brain axis, guys. But I was like... You looked it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, at that time, no one had any inkling that mental health would be such a huge part of how your body is, you know? Mm. And so, at that time, it was just like, we just go with the flow, see what happens. And then right as we were about to do the finals, like I think a month before I got my letter from CMPB. Oh. Yeah, and I had okay. to I had to enlist in I think the first week of January, where the idol finals was the last week of December. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I I better not win. If I win, this is gonna be a hellhole mess of a what yeah. whatever it's gonna happen. I don't know what's gonna happen, right? And then when I won, there's this image of me that they they overuse of me doing this like oh like alhamdulillah or something like but <laughs> it was actually like oh shit <laughs> I have to go to the army in a couple of days that was literally what was going on and in my you didn't mind. know you were going to MDC I didn't know I didn't know I didn't know I didn't know so mm-hmm. I I went to Pula Tekong you did the uh, BMT like everybody else a PESI BMT because I have scoliosis and a knee injury I can't prone oh okay I can't put my knee on a hard right, surface right, okay yeah Thank God for that. <laughs> but like, at the same time, the uh, first thing the CEO said was like, I don't give a, if you're the president's Singapore, son or, or the, the Singapore, Singapore idol. idol. <laughs> and it just felt like a moment where I'm like, is this like, everyone is trying to shoot an arrow at me or yeah. something. But it ended up that I was the Lao Chiao of the group as it turns out. Like, I, really? I had differed twice. Uh, okay. So you were at 19... I was three or four years older than everyone that was in my I batch. See. Everyone was A-level students. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I just was the lead. I ended up becoming the leader of the gang oh. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, because I was the oldest. And we would get together and everybody would ask me questions. Mm. Every night, people would ask me so many questions. Everything about Singapore Idol? Everything about life in general, like huh? making music okay. for a living, you know. It became a TED Talk every night. Like, wow. I, I, I remember it so clearly as like, they were so kind to me, my, my bunk mates. Mm. They were the kindest bunch of people who, who really cared for me and, right. and really didn't care about what other people had said at that time or whatever because 
I, as I look back now, I've seen so many articles that my wife had. So she keeps all of these archives, right? Okay. And I was looking at the articles and I was going like, oh, everybody wanted Sylvia to win. I oh, forgot. Yeah. And I oh, was yeah. literally like going through everything, mm. going like, eh, we don't want this guy. Mm. That impression that I got, you know, and like the headlines in the newspapers was like, another Malay guy. And it was just like snooze fest. It's like the nerdy guy won. I was just like, everybody was just trying to, I don't know, it was just the consensus at that time or something. I think people really wanted a female to win. Mm. I, mean, I really wanted a female to win. But I remember at that point in my career, that was really also the impetus for me. Like, you know what? I'm going to devote the rest of my goddamn life mm. to becoming like a better musician just so that I can, just so that I can not prove you wrong, but prove yeah. myself right. right. You know? Mm. I want to. I wanted to prove myself right. I think proving people wrong is the most destructive thing you can do for yourself. But I, I'm glad that I took that positive mental attitude yeah. towards making music. And then after that, I went to Indonesia, spent some time there. Yeah. I literally invested in the musicians I wanted to be around mm -hmm. and the music that I wanted to be around. Yeah. That really helped me to develop to become the songwriter that I am today. And now when I'm in the studio with other writers, there's a certain sense of confidence that I'm like, yeah, whatever turns out here is going to be good because we are being honest with ourselves, guys, and we are capable and we can do this. No stress. Stress will kill this. Let's go. Let's do it. You know, I have that mentality going into things now. And I think that's really changed everything. I think if you hear my music from the first album to this album, yeah. There's a certain sense of like, or what I've been told that like, I'm not trying in a sense. It doesn't feel like I'm trying too hard. It feels more relaxed. It feels more... Soothing. Soothing, <laughs> yeah. In, in that sense, you know. And I'm glad to be at that stage in not just my career, but my life where I can lead towards things with kindness and calmness especially. And just take a step back and mm -hmm. not be edgy or rush into anything or not have too strong an opinion on the get-go about anything, you know. Yeah think things through. I'm just glad to be in this headspace right now. Yeah. In 2011, I went to my first overseas music festival and that was Java Jazz ah, uh, in, in Jakarta. Which you recently played. Which I recently got to headline <laughs> in. It was so okay. crazy, right? Yeah, and yeah. so I went to Java Jazz to watch Kareen Bailey Ray. And when I went there, I was so mind blown by the fact that there were more people watching local artists. We're talking like five to 10,000 people, right? Watching local artists than like famous international artists. Yeah, Java Jazz. I just stood there and I was like, firstly, I wish this was my life. But secondly, how can we take this and learn all these lessons that is so valuable that can be learned from this and try to apply that to what we have, to our culture, to our scene. And so... Fast forward 2018, 2019, 2020 when the pandemic hit yeah. and my song It's You blew up in, in Indo. Yes. It was just a full circle moment where mm. everybody thought that, oh, Cesare is just so lucky to have broken in Indo where the, I was like, to me, the past seven know. years yeah, I've been, been working the ground. Kind of really just trying to learn from the musicians there and how they do things and how they operate and how they think about music to me is just like absolutely insane. Like, the KPIs is just how good you feel. <laughs> that, that blows my mind, right? If the index of how good this is, is how good everyone in the room mm. feels about it. That's just something that I never experienced before. Yeah. And so, when It's You happened, it was just a, a really full circle moment for me. And when I sang It's You at Java Jazz, it was just, man. When I was sound checking, people started rushing in mm -hmm. to watch me. And I was just like, is this... I'm so used to doing the Singapore crowds where, you know, yeah. 50 to fifty people turn up. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's cool. It's vibey. Yeah. 
but it's like thousands of people started running in and trying to get to the front and I'm still sound checking and I'm like this uh, you got the wrong guy or are you trying to <laughs> are you here to watch Steven Sanchez or, or and I'm just like and when they sang It's You I yeah. couldn't hear myself oh, wow it was so loud it was just that moment of oneness where I remembered that thing you do yeah and that one viral oh, hit okay, that has okay. taken over everything yeah. right mm. and just like while I was there, it was so crazy. Like it played in the Grab, and I told the Grab driver, "Mas, percaya nggak? Ini lagunya gue." I was like, "This is my song. Do you if you believe it or not?" Then he's like, "No way!" <laughs> and I show him. I was like, "This is me, dude." Then he's like, "Oh, I know every." He was like, "My son loves this song. My whatever loves this song." This is Jakarta. Yeah, okay. and everyone who I get introduced to as my Indonesian friends introduced me as the It's You guy. Wow. Just so that they're like, oh, that guy, you know? Okay. And I was like, wow. I never imagined that I would have a song that had such a reach to like. And it was all born out of the fact that when I wrote It's You, it was just like, oh, I'm so done with people telling me what the idea of a good song is. Yeah. Or like, you have to have an up-tempo song. Or this song is cool. Or like, this kind of producer is cool. When I wrote It's You, it was literally like, I just got married. Yeah. I just felt like we've been dating through Idol and keeping this a secret for seven years. Mm-hmm. And now we've been together for seven years, so it's like 14 years altogether, Congratulations. right? Thank you. Of just like her supporting me from behind the scenes mm-hmm. and really from day one of her telling me that, babe, if we go hungry, we'll go hungry. She was the first one that was like, you mm-hmm. are meant to do this and just like, it'll be a huge disservice to you and everyone who loves you and your music if you were to just like stop right now. And there were so many moments where I was just like, I'm just going to get a full-time job. This is just too tough to be doing all this leg work, groundwork for what in the end, right? But you and never now, did that. You did music all the way, right? Yeah, so. I was just, I've never had another... My previous None job music. before this was bartendering and waitering at a hotel <laughs> when I was 19. So since mm-hmm. then, it's just music all the way. It's just all that I know, all that I breathe and live. It sounds like a cliche, but I feel like if you want to do something like this, something artisanal, something niche, it's like you're doing yourself a huge disservice if you're doing it part-time. I think a lot of the times when we grow up in Singapore, we are taught what we need to do to survive. Yeah. Like you need this, 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 this. And in your 30s, every millennial Singaporean, I know at least in their 30s have been like, screw this, I'm doing this no more. Yeah. You reach a point where mm. you realize that this is not sustainable at all to be doing something that just is going against the grain of who you are, you know? And for me, like regardless of the hardships, regardless of the nights of eating nasi with kicap and telur nonstop, you know? It's that just has like, happened to you? Yeah, so many, so many times, like, I'll do a big appearance and like everybody's like, oh, this guy, this guy, and I'll come home and I'll be like, okay, that's the one gig this three months. <laughs> and, and this <laughs> and was after like, you were married. Yeah, this was like, I think, mid-2010s. Yeah, it was a tough time. But also now on hindsight, being here in this position, it makes me so grateful that people ask me to sing my own songs. Yeah. And sometimes I still go like, do you want a cover song? And they're like, mm. no, no, You want no. a Jason Mraz? Yeah, <laughs> no, no, Jason Mraz is in this area. Or do you want to do a cover song? And they're like, no, no, we want you to sing your songs. And I'm like, wow, that moment has happened for me mm. where like people know me for my songs. And right. So in 2021, besides It's You, you had another big song, the NDP theme, The Road. Oh, yeah, you were yeah, one yeah. of the singers behind, yeah. behind that song. And yeah. obviously it was huge because you've got the whole of Singapore singing that song, mm. you know, from kids to... Mm. 
you know, uncles and aunties and all that. Yeah. What was that? What was that like for you? Firstly, props to Linying and Adventure mm, Time. Linying, yeah. I think that year it was like a, a bunch of people had submissions. And I had the privilege of listening to all the submissions. Oh, um, so you helped to choose? No, I was just I just had the chance to listen. And then so I wrote a song called Breathing City that was a part of the start of the parade. Aisha Aziz had a song also. So that year was all original songs. Low key, everybody was kind of transfixed on that song, but that year was such a beautiful year for me because there were three Singaporean artists who wrote about what they truly feel about being in this current situation in Singapore. And I really feel like that was such a special moment in time that just cannot be repeated anymore, mm. ever, you know? Yeah. And that song from Lin just really, it was the thing that everyone was craving to feel, yeah. you know? Mm. And when I heard it, I was just like, Okay, I guess this is the theme song. <laughs> like I had submitted a song, but I heard it and mm-hmm. I was like, <gasps> "Well, you submitted a song as well." Yeah, I, okay. yeah, and and we ended up using all the songs, right? But yeah. we had to pick one that was the main song. Yeah. And when I heard Lin's song, I was just like, "Okay, narcissism aside, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <This is> it. <laughs> when it's good, it's good, it's so yeah. good." And she had also at that time co-written some songs on my album "Violets Aren't Blue." So uh, we have a very close okay. songwriting right, right. Okay. relationship. Mm. And I just texted her and I went like. This is something, I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but this is something. So just hang tight. I think okay. something's going to happen, you know? Mm. Yeah, so that happened. And it was just, uh, it was such a great moment also to be there mm. singing on NDP yeah. to an empty audience. Mm. It was just like there was no one in the seats. It was just a ghost town yeah. moment of like realization of where we are in space and time mm-hmm. like 2021 yeah. while we're yeah. in the pandemic you're like whoa yeah. that's insane thinking about it on hindsight mm. just like a special moment that really reminds me of we can make every anything work guys like no matter how tough things get when you put a bunch of people together who really want to make it work it can work Mm-hmm. And so we did that and that, that was just a testament to me of just like hard times can make diamonds, you know? Yep. Yeah. I learned so much from that experience. Yeah. Was that your first NDP? You performed before, right? At- that was my third NDP. Right. Mm. But I've only been in NDP as a performer. Right. So this no one, is yeah. the first time doing a theme. Doing a theme song, a yeah. theme song. Okay. All right. Great. So Zaire, oh. one last question for you. Yeah. This is something we ask all of our guests on the podcast. Look into a crystal ball and, uh, you know, what's happening with Sazairi in mm-hmm. five to ten years? I don't know. I'm manifesting a tour. A tour? Yeah, I feel like... Oh, wait, Singapore, Indonesia? Probably Southeast Asia. So- all of Southeast yeah. Asia? I'm really tuned in to Southeast Asian music right now. Yeah. I personally feel that Southeast Asia is the next big thing in international music. There's just a uniqueness about artists born and bred from Southeast Asia, having towed this line between being very culturally aware of our own culture and also culturally aware through the internet and through television of Western culture. Yeah. So we are a, a space, a region in which we are very attuned to both. Mm-hmm. And the artists that are coming out of Southeast Asia are kind of taking both and going, this is me. Yeah. And I really feel like that's in terms of making original music, I really feel like that is one of the best things you can do is to inject as much of yourself and as much of the things you know to be true mm. into what you do. And that'll just resonate with the people around you first. Because mm. a lot of us are constantly looking at validation from the West. Yeah. Mm. Like we want to win a Grammy. We want to go there and be like the first Singaporean to be on a billboard in Times Square or whatever. 
But for me, I realized that throughout all these years, these years of wanting that, mm. right? I realized that the thing that I yearn for most is the people closest to me respecting what I do. Right. And then lifting us all up together from where we are into parts unknown. And that's the kind of thing that I really resonate with right now. Um, that I feel like not only will help me become a better musician, but also will help me become a better person just by understanding what's around me and being conscious of who mm. is listening around me and championing that for them. All right. Yeah. All right. We look forward yeah. to that tour. Thank you so much, Sazai, for you. being on. Lovely speaking Thank to you. you. Always. Thank you for being coming on to Music Lab Podcast. That was your host, Adino Abdul Hadi. We hope you enjoyed listening to Music Lab, a podcast series by The Straits Times. To listen to Cesare's full live performance of his new single, Daylight, in our podcast studio, or read Adino's columns on the music scene in Singapore and elsewhere, there are links in our podcast show notes. Once again, make sure you follow ST's Music Lab podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Get notified when we drop the latest episodes. Thanks for listening. Alright. <laughs>